0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today in verses 19 through uh, 23 and um, you know if you're new uh, I'm glad you're here and but uh, we've been journeying through the Bible as, with, as a church just going um, through it together uh, in a year. We're doing a reading plan together. And, hey, if you want to join us, the reading plan's online. You can find that easily in the app or, or anywhere um, we are. And, uh, and just jump in with us. You don't have to start from the beginning. Jump in the week that we are in and, uh, and so we are getting close to the end, though, and every week I've been preaching out of the reading plan. So today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. I want to give you a little context, and then we'll read it and ask God to, to bless our time in His Word today. And, and, uh, and so the context is that Paul planted this church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And now he is writing back to them around 55 A.D., Uh, Now, this church, the church at Corinth, is a messy church. It's struggling with many divisions in the church. And so Paul writes here to clear up some questions and to correct some errors and to seek to unify the church in love. Okay, So he addresses a lot of really practical things in this book. Uh, Today we're going to see one of them in 1 Corinthians 9. Verse nineteen through twenty three. Let's read this together, and um, and then we'll pray. Are you Are you there? Are you ready? Here we go. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father in heaven, I thank you uh, for preserving your word for us, God. And I just pray that you would speak to us, God. We, we give you our attention. We set our mind on your word. And we just pray that you'd give us understanding by your spirit. I pray that you'd guide my speech and my words. That the words of my mouth... And the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be pleasing in your sight today. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Imagine with me, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, maybe it's common experience um, in America as you go to... Uh, maybe you have a new friend, a new acquaintance. They invite you over to a, a dinner party, and so you show up at this dinner party. Your first time there. You've never been there before. You walk into the foyer, and um, and you look around. You see that the, the carpets are pristine. You know, this house is neat. You look around at the host, and you see that they don't have shoes on. You look to your left. You're still at the front door. You look to your left, and there's this little shoe rack, a nice shoe rack and, and a place for um, even more shoes at the front of the foyer. So this is what you've experienced your first time in this house. What do you do? You take, yeah, you take off your shoes. I think everybody would take off their shoes. It really doesn't matter if maybe you wear shoes at your home. Everybody takes off their shoes. I don't know anybody who's like, this is, I'm, I'm an American. I am free to wear my shoes wherever I go. I don't know anybody who's like, as for me in my house, we will wear shoes, and I have the right to wear my shoes all over your carpet. I don't know anybody like that. Or maybe an even more difficult experience is whenever you go into um, someone's home and their carpets are kind of clean, and some of the people have shoes and some of them don't, and then you're like, "What what do I... What do I do? Have you ever had that experience? Maybe not. Okay, but the point is that whenever you walk, for the sake of respect for the host, even if you are a shoe wearer, you become a shoe taker offer. The point is that for the sake of culture and respect, we're willing to become Something that we're not. And if we're willing to do that with shoes, why can't we humble ourselves and do this in all things, in all opinions, in all practices, in all habits for the sake of love? See, our mission here at uh, Bayou Church is uh, simple it's to love God, to love people. And to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Now this is not just only why we exist as a church. We believe that this mission is not just for a church. But for every believer. That God calls every believer to be about loving God. Loving people and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And a big piece of that is loving people. Even those outside of the church, even those outside of our faith. And one of the best ways that we can love people is by helping them experience the same love that we've experienced of our God, helping them begin a relationship with the true and living God. That is our mission as believers. That is our focus as believers. But what does a life laser-focused on the mission of God look like? Well, I think that's what we're going to see today. And um, Paul's main idea is this, that out of love for the lost, we forego our freedoms to be a winsome witness For Jesus Christ. That's the first point, the only point, the main point today, that out of love for the lost, we forego our freedoms to be a winsome witness for Jesus Christ. It's a one point sermon. Doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon. But let's just unpack that together. The what of this statement. Verse 19, he says. Though I am free, for I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. He says, I'm free from all. He's like, I'm free in Christ. John uh, 8.36 says, Who the Son sets free is free indeed." That whenever we come to Christ, we are set free from our bondage to sin. We are set free from the obligations of the law. And in many cases... We're set free from people-pleasing. And so even as he's going to talk about kind of adapting or foregoing freedoms uh, for the sake of others, he's not talking about living as a people-pleaser, seeking to get your affirmation from others. It's something totally different. What he says here is that we have rights and freedoms in Christ. Whenever he says that I become a servant to all, he's not denying that we have rights and freedoms in Christ. What he's saying is that he's, he's not enslaved by people, but he willingly, freely becomes a servant to all. He says, I have made myself a servant to all, hence the forego our freedoms. But what freedoms did Paul forego? What, what Rights did he lay aside? Well, if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, he lets us know. Let's get a little bit more context for this passage. In the beginning of chapter 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? So, one of the things that he's going against is there were some people in this church at Corinth that began to question the apostleship of Paul. They're like, You weren't one of the twelve. I don't even know if you're really an apostle. And so he's kind of giving them some uh, validity to his apostleship. And he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who, who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he says, you know, I have, he's had this, there's this right of food. I can eat what I want, not want. He's like, there's this right to have a, have a wife and a family that he has laid aside that right in order to devote all his time and attention to the gospel. He's, saying, he's not saying those things are wrong. He's just saying that he has laid that right aside. He's like, hey, the other apostles, they're traveling around with their families. Peter, him, and his wife, they're going everywhere. Not me. I've I've laid aside my right to have a family so I can focus on this mission. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority, Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out its grain. It is uh, for oxen, that is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope that the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it not too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but have endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ." Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in its sacrificial offerings in the same way. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What he's saying here is he's making a case that ministers should get paid for doing ministry. And he says ministers have a right to get paid for doing ministry. If you give your life to the gospel, you should make your living by the gospel. But he says, look, I've structured my ministry in a different way. Whereas Paul's funding was a little... Uh, diverse and complicated, so he, whenever he went to a church to minister, he would not ask anything of that church. He would then leave and go and plant another church, and he would not ask anything from that church that he was actively ministering in. But what would happen is the previous churches that he's ministered in, the previous churches that he's planted, they would begin to send support to Paul. So now it not becomes a a payment of exchange of goods and services. It is now a free will offering in support of his ministry. And so he's like, whenever I'm ministering among people, I don't ask for any money from anyone so that no one can say I'm here for the dollar. So that no one can say I'm here to make money off of you or to peddle you guys for anything. And he says, even me talking about this now, he says, I'm not saying this to secure this provision. I'm not even saying this so that you will give to me now. He says, look, I have a right. I have a right to it. But I've laid it aside. And not only has he received support from other churches in the past, but, but he also works and makes tents for a living in order to provide for himself so that he can freely offer the gospel to others, so he continues, and um, verse sixteen: For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting; for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have no reward. But if I um, if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if I if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward that in in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so that not to make full use of my right in the gospel? So though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might save some. So, So he's saying, look, I have full right. I have full right to make money. I lay that aside. I offer the gospel freely to not be a hindrance or a burden to any one, and he's like, "Look, I do this because I'm called to do this. I don't do this to get paid. If I wasn't making a dime, I would still do this because this is what God has put the burden in my bones." So, so what has Paul given up? What has he foregone? As he writes to us and says, "You need to forego your freedoms in order to be a winsome witness for Jesus Christ." What has he foregone? He, forg- he forg- his food rights to eat what he wants. He surrenders that from times. He surrendered his right to have a family for the sake of the gospel and he surrendered his right to make a living from people in the gospel so that he can... So he's done it. He's been an example to us. But he says, I've made myself a servant to all. Servant is I let God and others dictate what I do. Whenever you are a servant, you're not in charge of your own behavior, you're not in charge of your actions and the things that you do. You are, exist to serve others. It's asking the question, what would best benefit them in this interaction? What would best benefit this person in this interaction? Seeing yourself as a servant is one of the most freeing things you can do. Because then you don't have to feel like you always had to fight for, for my rights and secure my rights and all of those things. I'm free I am free to serve. But why would anyone voluntarily give up their rights? Why would we do that? He says that I might win more of them. This seems to be the, the purpose statement of Paul's life, that he lives for the salvation of Others, this is his purpose, that I might win people to Christ. Let me ask you, church, what is your purpose in life? What is your purpose in life? Is it to have a happy family? I hope you have a happy family. Is that your purpose? Is it to build a successful career? Is your purpose to reach heaven? I think for most of us in the West, is your purpose... To be comfortable. Your purpose to be comfortable physically, comfortable. Financially comfortable. Relationally comfortable. What is your your purpose in life? Might I suggest that we adopt Paul's purpose. That this is the purpose of the believer. To be winsome. To be a winsome witness. Whatever it takes. Notice he says, when that I might win them, that I might win them. He says win five times in five verses. And this win is the, is the idea of to gain. It's a financial term, meaning to turn a profit, that there's gain in his efforts. He's like, I am investing, I am, I am foregoing my freedoms to invest in others so that, when, that I will reap a benefit from that investment, namely their salvation, so I'm working towards this. I'm investing in this, and I want to turn a profit of souls through this. Is what he's saying. Might I suggest that the highest goal is to glorify God and to rescue souls from hell? Do we forget the uh, the end of all people? That we will all spend eternity either with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. Those are the two um, destinations for every soul. And do we forget that and not remember that we should try in our best effort to rescue as many souls from hell as possible? Did you know that people are the only thing that you can bring with you to heaven? At the end of your life, everything that you've spent your entire life working for, you've built your entire life. You've built your dream home. You finally got that car that you've been dreaming of, and it feels so good. And you've got you fluffed your retirement account, and you're going to sit pretty in the end. And maybe you're, now, you're able to travel the country and, and have a good time. And you've accumulated all this success, maybe, in life. Did you not know everything you work for is going to be gone? You're not taking any of it. Not any of it. There's going to be someone else who eventually lives in your house. Someone else you don't know is going to drive your car. Someone else is going to buy your stuff at the garage sale. The only thing that we bring from this earth into heaven is people. And the only thing that lasts for eternity is your impact on the lives of people. So out of love for the lost, we forgo our freedoms to be a winsome witness for Jesus Christ. So that's the what, and then how do we do that? He unpacks that in verse 20 where he says, To the Jew I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law, he says, to a Jew I became as a Jew. So he's talking about kind of being adaptive to different uh, peoples. Uh, but why did Paul need to become a Jew? Have you thought about this? Why did Paul need to become a Jew? Was he not already a Jew? Paul in other places boasts. He said, I could boast more than all of you. I'm the Jew of Jews. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I kept the law better than anybody. Was he not already Jewish? Why would he say to the Jew I became As a Jew. Well, he explains it in the second half of that verse. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Here's the explanation. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. So, under the law is under the law covenant, under the old covenant, that Paul no longer views himself as. Jewish as under the old covenant, he now sees himself as a Christian under the new covenant. So, how do you become as a Jew or how do you become under the law? Well, you observe uh, Jewish customs, you might um, observe uh, the Sabbath, although he might be free, feel free from that uh, ob- observation. You, he would might when he's uh, around Jewish people. He would go to synagogue with them and attend synagogue. He would uh, eat kosher whenever he's having meals with uh, people who are still under the law. He surrendered himself, submitted himself to the law of Jews uh, in, in areas in order to win them. In Acts chapter twenty one. Uh, Paul participated in a Jewish purification ceremony, which he knew was not necessary for his own life, but he hoped that this would build a bridge um, of ministry to the Jews. In Acts chapter 16, he he circumcises Timothy. And the the chapter before, they had just settled that you uh, don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And the very next thing he does is he goes and circumcises Timothy. Why? Because he knew our ministry is going to be first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And him not being circumcised is going to be a stumbling block to reaching Jews. And so he was willing to um, submit himself to the law in areas that were non-essential so that he could then reach those who are under the law. Verse 21, he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Outside of the law would be the Gentiles. So those under the law would be, would be the Jews, under the law of the covenant. Outside of the law would be Gentiles. And, uh, but he says, I'm not outside, I'm not outside of the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. Under the law of Christ is the new covenant. So he's making clear, I'm under the new covenant. I'm not lawless. We talked about lawlessness last. He says, even though I'm outside of the law, I'm not lawless. I'm under the law of Christ, under the law of love, under Christ's teaching and life. So how does he become outside the law when he has already identified himself as not being under the law? He thought about this. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But just he just qualified that he's not under the law. So how is he becoming outside the law to those if he's already outside the law? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, verse 22 is the explanation of verse 21. So if in verse 20, the second half of the verse explains the first half of the verse. In verse 22, it explains verse 21, where he says in verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. So to the weak I become the weak. So that's who he's saying are the people who are outside of the law. Well, what, what, who are these weak people that he's talking about? <clears throat> well, to get the definition of that, we've got to flip back to chapter 8 this is whenever he brings up this issue of the weak people and chapter 8 is is short I think I'll read it quickly and we'll and we'll see the context of what he's saying about these weak people so who are these weak people chapter 8 verse 1 he says now concerning food offered to idols we know that um, all of us possess knowledge and this knowledge puffs up but love builds up If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, the whom all things, and through Him we exist. So uh, he he kind of says, "Look, the biggest one of the big issues of his day was whether or not you ate food offered to idols." And this doesn't necessarily mean that you were actually going to the idol worshiping ceremony and going to the potluck at the idol worshiping temple. He's saying that you know there was times where there was people, maybe a butcher who he worshipped idols, and so as before he butchers his meat, he kind of offers it up, in a sense, to his idols. And then he chops it up, and he, and he serves it. Or, um, or they would offer meat to idols, and then they would send that meat off to the market, and it was kind of the discounted meat. Because it was the meat that previously it was like it was like secondhand meat. It was, it was used, and so you would get the discount. So then the, the, the Christians on a budget were like, what do I do? Like, because the meat is cheaper, right? It's the same, it seems the same, it's cheaper, but some people say we can't eat meat offered to idols, so what should we do? And Paul says, look, there are no other gods. Idols are not real. He says, yes, there are things that capture your heart. There is idolatry. Idolatry is real. But there are no other gods but God. And it does not, it's not as much what you put in your mouth that matters as what comes out of your mouth that matters, is said elsewhere. So he says, it's okay if you eat this meat. So he says, however, verse 7 of chapter 8, not all possess this knowledge. So he says, Look, it's okay if you eat it, it does not matter. Get the discounted meat. It's fine. But not all believe that. Not all have this knowledge. Though former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he says, look, there's people who maybe have come to Christ and they used to be idolaters. They used to worship these idols. And so for them, it's an issue of conscience. I can't in good conscience, eat the meat that was offered to the idol that I used to worship. He says, they have that conviction. So what do we do? Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it or better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, who have knowledge eating in an idol temple with he uh, not being encouraged, if his conscience is weak to eat, food offers to idols. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest... I make my brother stumble. That's a pretty strong stance to take, Paul. And so what he says, look, hey, if, if you know, and he's like, you and I know, it's okay to eat the, it's okay to eat the meat. Some of them don't, aren't quite convinced of that. They don't know that. Um, and so we change our behavior um, whenever we're in their presence. If they have a conviction against something, we don't partake in that. We abstain. We forgo our rights. He's like, if I I have to become a vegetarian, I would. I will. In order to not offend a brother. So the weak here are those with sensitive consciences. You might could consider it a naive, ill-informed conscience. It's someone who thinks something is wrong when it is not wrong. It's someone who makes issues out to be right and wrong issues when they're not right and wrong issues. It's someone who says, oh, this is black and white, and it's not black and white. And, uh, and, and so he's saying, this weak person, we have to be conscious of them and adapt to them. Um, now, I want to clarify that the weak is not uh, the legalistic Christian who... Does not believe that it's okay for Christians to drink, and so then they say, "Well, because my conscience says I can't drink, you can't drink." Um, uh, that's not the weaker brother. That's the legalist. They 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 they're not they're not they don't have an issue of conscience. They have an issue of control. And they want to control everybody's behavior and make you bend to all their uh, extra biblical rules. And so that's not what he's saying at all. I think we can all probably clearly understand the difference between someone who sincerely has a, a conscience issue about a behavior. And they're really struggling with it versus someone who's being legalistic and imposing that on everyone else. It's more like when I was a teenager, maybe 12 maybe 12 or 13 years old, I don't remember exactly, but I do remember this occasion where I was a teenager and I was in Walmart. And I saw across uh, the store um, a deacon in our church uh, put, a, put a case of beer in their cart. And as a naive, young Christian, that Wrecked me. I I, I was like, it really made me wrestle. I was like, this guy's a leader in our church, and he's like loading up on beer. Like, I doubt he's just drinking one. And, And it just wrecked me. And I really wrestled with whether drinking was okay and drunkenness and all of that. That's more who he's talking about. That sometimes your behavior as a mature Christian, who maybe you're acting completely within your freedoms in Christ, he's like sometimes if you're not careful, you you will offend, you will you will um, offend the conscience of a weaker brother. Um, but it it can't be exactly the same. Uh, as chapter eight because in chapter eight he's the context is believers. In chapter 9, his context of the weak are non-believers. And so, who are these non-believers who also have a weak conscience? And that's why I think that maybe he could be referring to what are known as God-fearers. So, there are a few different types of Gentiles. There's just your regular old pagan Gentile who are non-Jewish. But then you had uh, proselytes, which are Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And they've adopted the whole uh, religion. So they are proselytes, Gentile converts, but then there were these other group of Gentiles called God-fearers. And God-fearers uh, are um, Gentiles who have rejected the immorality of paganism and were attracted, really, to the life and morality of the Jews. They had uh, some attraction to the idea of this one God system that they were in, but they haven't converted Uh, They haven't fully adopted this system. So they were unconverted Gentiles. They were not under the law, but they have adopted the morals of the Jews. And so now they then maybe have this weak or sensitive, naive conscience in regards to things like eating food offered to idols. So he's saying, even though these people are not Jewish, they have adopted the viewpoint that eating this meat is wrong. And they even have an ill-informed conscience. And he says we even have to be willing to forgo our freedoms in regard to eating in order to witness to these people. Perhaps um, Paul adapted to their weak conscience, most likely by abstaining from food offered to idols, among other things. But I want you to notice what's fascinating about this whole teaching about um, forgoing our rights for... um, for those of weak conscience, is that Paul would rather you listen to your ill-informed conscience than harden it. Paul would rather you live um, and obey your conscience, whether or not it was right, than go against your conscience and harden it because then who knows what other more important matters you might be willing to harden your conscience on later on. And so he's like, the conscience is something that we have to listen to and be careful of, not just our own conscience, but the conscience of others, the conscience of other believers and non-believers, because we want people to get into the habit of listening to conscience. Verse 22b, he says, I've become all things to all people, so that by all means... I might save some, all things to all people. See, Paul recognizes that these two groups of people that he mentions um, are, are only examples and not an exhaustive list. That this principle applies broadly. It applies to your Muslim friends and the Jewish uh, friends, to Hindus, to Jehovah Witnesses, to Mormons and to atheists, and, and, all of, uh, and even more. So he's like, this is a principle of life. It's not just Jews and Gentiles, God fears all. It's not just that. This is a principle that applies broadly. I want you to see what this passage is not saying, though, because we can misinterpret or misapply these passages. This passage is not saying to compromise the truth. It's not saying to compromise the message. He's like, I I never, (laughs) Paul did not um, shrink back from proclaiming boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's like, the message does not change. Methods do. I'll adapt my methods all day long. Message never changes. So it's not compromising the truth. It's not saying to go against your conscience. We've already talked about that. It's not saying, hey, you go against your conscience in order to protect the conscience of others. No, if you can't, in good conscience, uh, adapt, then stand down, you know. But, But don't harden your conscience. It's not saying to be a hypocrite. Or to wear a mask, He's not saying Paul is like a chameleon. Like he's a different person around everyone he's he's around. And so he's not saying be a hypocrite. Be one way with these people. And be a different way with those people. And be a different way with these people. He's not saying that. Paul was um, solidly a follower of Jesus Christ. With uh, convictions and principles and morals. He was who he is everywhere he went. But he adapted some of these non-essential things. Um, It's not saying... Sin with sinners. He's not saying sin with sinners. He's not saying go get drunk with your unbelieving friends because they think getting drunk is fun. That's not what he's saying. And hopefully in our drunken stupor, I'll have an opportunity to talk about Jesus. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying sin with sinners. Other than that, he's saying most things are preferences. Most things are methods, most things that we, we can adapt to reach the lost. He says, so I might save some. Paul isn't saying that he's the one who saves, just that he is the one leading the, them to the one who saves Jesus Christ. Salvation of souls is his priority. Now, uh, just notice here, Paul does not see himself as a Jew or a Gentile, but as a Christian, He sees himself as this third category. And so he reaches out to the conservative Jews on the right who are under the law and in bondage to its rules. And he reaches out to those um, liberal Gentiles on his left who are not under the law but in bondage to sin and he reaches out and brings them together, identifies with them both, appeals to them both, and seeks to lead them both to true freedom in Christ. He's identifying with others for their salvation. So that's how he did it. Why? Why does he do it? Verse 23. He says, I do it all. For the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And I just have to ask, church, as I wrestle with this question, um, what do you do for the sake of the gospel? Is there anything in your life that you do for the sake of the gospel? Is there anything in your life that you've sacrificed or or adapted or given up for the sake of reaching the lost with the gospel? Paul says, look, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul's like, I'm not content with just being a recipient of the gospel. I want to be a participant in the gospel. I don't want to just believe the gospel. I want to be uh, an agent to get this gospel to others. And there's great joy whenever you see someone else experience the joy in Jesus Christ that you have experienced. When you see the lights come on in their eyes and in their soul that they are now experiencing this freedom that we know and enjoy in Christ. We share with them in its blessings, the blessing of knowing the Lord. But alternatively, When you refuse to share the gospel with others, you're essentially saying, I don't want others to experience this blessing of eternal life that you have experienced in Christ. So what do we do? So we have the what, we have the how, we have the why. What does this look like in our life? A few points of application. Uh, Don't bring bacon to the bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, okay? Don't bring bacon to the bar mitzvah. Don't eat pork. Uh, if, you're, if you're having lunch with your a Jewish friend, do not order a baconator, okay? And so, <clears throat> I mean, that's literally what he's kind of getting at. I, I was in a, a training recently for pastors about how to witness, how to share the gospel with Hindus, And we don't have a a terribly large Hindu population, but we do have Hindus in our community. Some of of them own the the subway right here in town. And so um, it was a whole training session specifically how to share the gospel with Hindus. And he's like, one of the things is when you go to have a conversation with Hindus, don't eat beef. Eating beef is like, that. they would ask, he said, whenever he was a, a, a missionary in Myanmar, the speaker, he said, um, when we go into a the town, they would ask you, do you eat beef, as kind of a question of, are you a good person? <laughs> do you eat beef? Because if you ate beef, you were like, you're not a good person. And so he's like, don't eat beef. Actually, a lot of Hindus are vegetarian, so maybe don't even eat meat. So if you're having a barbecue and you're inviting over your Hindu neighbors, you um, Maybe don't serve beef. Just some things to be conscious of. That's kind of what he's getting at here. Um, Here's here's a hard one. Don't eat a rare steak if you're eating with a friend who has a conscience issue about eating steak that's not fully cooked. Now, I'm not saying people who have preferences, okay? People who have preferences towards well-done steaks, we're praying for their salvation. (laughs) What I'm saying is, Whenever somebody really has a, a wrestling, a conscience wrestling with what they believe to be blood in the meat, you're not supposed to eat the meat uh, with blood and all, if they, if they are wrestling with that, don't order a rare steak, order chicken, okay? Order, it's better to eat chicken than a well-done steak. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. Maybe, maybe you will endure a well-done steak for their conscience. If you're, look, if you're having lunch with your Catholic friend um, on Friday during Lent, order a fish sandwich. If your friends and family are partaking in ceremonies that you think are wrong, you don't necessarily have to tell them that they're wrong. You can really just adapt to them in order to build the relationship and to seek to win them to the Lord. Um, don't drink in front of those who think that it is wrong biblically. Don't refuse, don't refuse to eat something. If somebody serves you something in their home, they've brought you over, don't refuse to. I don't eat that. I don't eat mushrooms or I don't eat tomatoes. No, thank you. No, it's like for the sake of the relationship, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat, I'm going to partake in whatever you, I'm going to show respect to you. I might, I might not be a mushroom person, but I'm going to eat mushrooms tonight. In order to build this relationship, this is the kind of thing that he's saying here: to adapt. When I was headed to Mexico, I was with Jesse on, on one of these trips, and and uh, we were going from Belize uh, into Mexico. We had ministered for a week in, or most of the week in Belize, and then we were going to make some visits with pastors in Mexico. On the trip, we're approaching the border. The leader of the trip leans over to me and says, "Hey, uh, can you can you take out your earring?" I've had an earring since I was like eight years old. It's not, it's not like a statement that I'm making. I mean, it was just something I got when I was a kid. and I've always had it. And, uh, and so he, he just leans over to me and says, hey, can you take out your earring? And I was like, I guess. so." <laughs> like, why? And he's like, in Belize, it's not really an issue. They don't really care. But in Mexico, they, they would be offended by that. They would kind of have an issue with you having an earring. And I said, of course. I took it out, put it in my bag. Do I have a right to keep my earring in? Absolutely. Is it going to be a stumbling block? Is it going to be an unnecessary? Can I adapt? Absolutely. Like it's one of those things. It's like this is non-essential. It's not a conviction. It's like I can adapt this in order to build a bridge with others. And maybe none of these resonate with you. Um, Maybe think of it like this as we are seeking to forgo our freedoms, to lay down our rights, to serve others, in your conversations with others, who is being served? Whenever you're just having conversation, whenever you're interacting with others, other believers and non-Christians, whenever you're interacting, who is being served in those conversations? Are you trying to get across your most interesting stories? Are you trying to share with them your highlight reel? Are you trying to help them see how awesome you are? and the things that you've accomplished, and the cool things that are happening in your life? Are, is that your focus? Is I, I want to be served in this conversation, so I'm going to share. Or maybe you're not that positive, so you're like, let me show you all the, the terrible things that are going on in my life this week. Let me whine to you for a little bit, and let me complain and groan and mumble and murmur. like." And so who's being served in that conversation? I am. Or are you seeking to serve them in the conversation? Consider being more interested than interesting. That has been tremendously helpful for me because I fail at this all the time. Consider being more interested than interesting. Be interested in their desires and their dreams and their hopes and what's going on in their life than you trying to come across as interesting to them. Make people feel heard and valued. People are more likely to hear what you have to say if they feel like you genuinely care about what they care about. Let me ask you this. Can you, can you listen to someone that you disagree with without correcting them? Oh, that's hard for me. Can you listen to someone that you disagree with without correcting them? Can you sacrifice your right to be right? This is hard. Now this assumes that you're interacting with non-believers. It also assumes that you're friends with people who are different than you. And our natural habit is to make friends who we share interests and hobbies and likes and values. But Paul's like, look, I'm intentionally making friends with people who aren't like me, who differ from me in many ways who don't even believe like me. We need to ask ourselves, am I so much of a Republican that I wouldn't have an opportunity to share the gospel with a Democrat? Am I so much of a Democrat that I wouldn't have the opportunity to share the gospel with a Republican? Do you realize that what you proudly share on Facebook can alienate people and ruin your opportunity to share the gospel with them? And it's usually on secondary arguments. It's not like essential matters of eternity things that are much less important than the gospel. Are you just destroying your gospel witness online for the sake of winning a political argument? All right, a little too close to home here. Maybe your homework this week would be uh, to make some non-Christian friends. I know it's hard for me. I'm a pastor. I work at a church. Right, Most of the people who I interact with on a daily basis are Christians. And, uh, and so this is something I'm working on, trying to put myself in environments where I interact with people who are not Christians. And so that might mean for you that you join a gym and begin to make friends with people at the gym who don't go to church, or you join some sort of club, or you go golfing alone. You know, if you go golfing alone, they'll pair you with a stranger. Isn't that strange? When I go golfing alone, I want to golf alone. But they'll pair you with a stranger, and now you've got someone to talk to for a couple hours. Um, or for me, it's maybe go to a coffee shop and interact with some people who, um, who are in the coffee shop and uh, seek to strike up conversations with them. So maybe your homework is to make some non-Christian friends. Just do something. What prevents you from doing this? Do you not see the reward is worth it? That's not really worth it to me or maybe you're saying well it's just not who i am i don't really talk to people about stuff like that that's just not who i am it's not my personality it's not so what you're saying is that your highest god or your priority is comfort and that makes you uncomfortable and therefore you're not willing to do it i'm sorry we can talk to god afterwards together remember paul is speaking not at a pastor's conference corinthians not written it's not he's not speaking at a pastor's conference he's not speaking at a missionaries alliance He's speaking to a local church. He's speaking to ordinary, messy believers. They've got a lot of problems, but he's like, even with all your problems, you should still be conscious of reaching lost people. And we do all this because um, Christ did it for us. Philippians 2, 5-8 says, Have this mind among yourselves. This mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus did this for us. He came into our world. He didn't demand that we go to his world. He came into our world, entered our world, humbled himself, laid aside his rights as God and humbled himself and became a servant. And he identified with us. He says that he came in the likeness of men. He identified with humans. Coming in the likeness of men. He identified with Israel. He identified with sinners. He was a friend of sinners. He got baptized. Why would he get baptized? He didn't have any sins that needed to be washed away. Why would he get baptized? Maybe it was his way of identifying with sinners. Even though he was not a sinner. He identified with our weaknesses and our temptations. He came into our world. Identified with us. In order so that he might reach us with the gospel, that we might trust him as our Lord and Savior. See, sin separated us from God, but he came to reunite us with God. He came to us. And we should go to others. What will you do this week? How will you love the lost this week? What freedoms will you forego to be a winsome witness for Jesus Christ? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit among us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just apply this to our life, God. We are all living in so many different worlds and contexts and journeys. I just pray that your spirit would then apply this to our hearts, God, and that this week we would be more committed out of love for the lost to forgo our freedoms, to be a winsome witness. That our priority would not be being right on issues, but God, um, being winsome so we can win people to life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd open our eyes to opportunities, to have conversations and build relationships with those who are far from you, and I pray that you'd give us boldness to act and to speak. God, give us self-control and the ability to lay down our rights. I pray that we'd see this as a worthy endeavor, bringing people with us to heaven. Father, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't, has never trusted you, that today would be the day where they surrender their life to Jesus Christ. Trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. That you transform our lives. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.